Uh, in case you are new or visiting, my name is Luke, one of the pastors here at Carson Valley Bible, and it is a joy of mine uh, to be able to open up the Word of God with you, as we do every single Sunday. Now, um, if you are just joining us, last week we began a new series in the book of Genesis, in the book of Genesis. As Justin mentioned, we do have those Genesis scripture journals, um, and those are, are free. That's our gift to you. If you did not receive one when you walked in on the, the back row, there is a stack of them. You can go ahead and just grab one of those as well. Um, that's just our, a way for you. If you want to take sermon notes, you can. If you want to record uh, prayers in that, or just use it for whatever you want, um, that is our gift to you. If you would like to, to give uh, towards the church so we could buy more of those, it costs us about $4 uh, per book. So at the Connect Desk, uh, they are accepting uh, um, some cash if you would like to give so we could keep buying those books uh, for more people. All right. Well, before we actually jump into the text, um, a few things that I want to highlight first is I want to give you guys an update on uh, my daughter Carly. I mentioned last Sunday before the sermon um, that Carly, one of my uh, daughters, my three-year-old daughter, she was in the hospital. Um, in she was in the hospital until about Wednesday of this week. We were able to bring her home. She's doing much better. Um, she had a bout with a respiratory virus, not COVID, different one. Other ones still exist too. And, but she's doing much better. She just needed a little bit of supplement on oxygen. And so my family is slowly but surely getting all healthy again. But I want to just thank you. Many of you guys reached out. Uh, let us know that you're praying, offered meals, offered all kinds of things. And to, to that, uh, we are extremely grateful uh, for each and every one of you to that end. All right. Now, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and make sure that you have Genesis open to chapter 1. Uh, we are going to be picking it up in verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3, and we are going to be reading to chapter 2, verse 3, this morning. And as you are turning there, in case you are not aware of this, uh, my wife and I, uh, Gina, we are high school sweethearts. Uh, we started dating um, our freshman year of high school. We were 15 years old. And when you date, and I use that term very loosely for high school dating when you're 15 years old, when you are dating in high school, you are very limited on your date night capabilities, right? You can't drive yourself. You have barely any money to your name, so you really don't have um, a lot of ways to do fun stuff when you are 15 in the way that maybe you'd want to. And truth be told, then, our very first date was at Jack in the Box, Okay. I mean, it was two tacos for one dollar, people. I mean, you can't beat that, right? I don't think you can beat that even today. I know. Gina's been giving, and this was before we were Christians, by the way. Gina's been giving me grace and mercy for a long time. For a long time. But I bring that up because there was something that we did do during those, those early years as we were just trying to grow into maturity to learn more about each other is... Oftentimes, on you know, Friday or Saturday, I would go over to, to Gina's house uh, with her family, with her parents, and we would have dinner, and we would watch a movie, um, and it was a, just a great way to, to, to learn and to, to grow together, but one of the things that we did do is we would go outside, um, and they had a trampoline in their backyard, and they lived out in Genoa, and um, there wasn't much of street lights. It was great for laying on the trampoline and gazing up at the stars, something that we did. It was just a time for us to you know, 
dream out loud together, for us just to kind of behold the cosmos, if you will. And, and we did that um, quite regularly as we were growing up. Now, fast forward a few years, uh, we became Christians in our, our early years of college, but we continued to hang out and go out on trampoline and just lay there and look up at the stars and to dream and to talk and have conversation. But there was a difference that happened in those early years than what happened when we became Christians. Because I would say, usually what we did is we would look up at the stars and we would go, man, I just feel so small. I feel so small. And it would basically be centered around me or centered around us. But the difference that we noticed that when we became Christians is all of a sudden when we looked up at those same exact stars, you know what we thought? We didn't start thinking about ourselves. We weren't saying, look how small we are. We started saying, look how big God is. Because that's the point of all of creation, church. Is it's supposed to get your attention, get your gaze, get this oddness off of yourself and point it to its maker. Now, I have a text that will be on the screen from Psalm 19.1. This is, this is what the Bible even tells us. This is true. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And so this morning, as we read and we ponder this creation narrative that we have in the opening chapter of Genesis, as we see these six days of creation, what I am imploring, what I am praying for this morning, is that you would walk out of here not thinking, oh man, I'm just so small. But you would start thinking, this is how big God is. That's the point of creation. It's to get your oneness onto God and off of yourself. That really there would be this bridge between your heart and your mind on just the grandness and the glory of the creator of all things. That's what we're in, I'm attempting to do this morning as we walk through this first chapter of Genesis. But let me go ahead and I'll pray one more time. And then I'll read for us our text. And then we will get going. But please pray for me as I pray for you. Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you that we, as, as a people this morning, just have the ability to open up your word. That we have the ability to know who you are, God. That much like the, the primary audience of Genesis, you know, a bunch of former Egyptian slaves who didn't know much about God. God, you have given Genesis 1 to be just this foundation, this framework to who you are what kind of power you possess, what kind of goodness that you have inside of you, because it's you. And so, God, I pray this morning that every man, woman, child in this room, that you would just illuminate their hearts and their minds to, to rightly be able to understand the God of Genesis 1. God, we also want to pray for our kiddos in the room next door as they're learning the same thing, that they would see that there is a big God who not only created all the things that they love to talk about and draw and to dream, but that it's a God who wants to know them and wants to be in a relationship with them. And God, I thank you for our teachers who are leading that pathway to our littlest hearts. But God, we need you desperately in all that we attempt to do this morning. So it's in your mighty name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so Genesis chapter 1. Starting in verse 3, and I'm going to just read to 2, 3. It's a little bit longer text than we normally do, but 
think it's important for us to read the entire creation narrative this morning. So starting in verse 3, it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Verse 11. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. Verse 17. And God set them in the expanse of heavens to give light on the earth. To rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Verse 30, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heaven, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. 
Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Church, that is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Yes, we are thankful for God's word. All right. Now, over the history of the church, uh, there has been quite a bit of debate when it comes to this opening chapter of the Bible. Ostensibly, it's been more over the last 150 years than the, the previous years, but there's been a lot of debate about the nature or the purpose of what Genesis 1 is actually communicating. Now today, I desire to the best of my ability, church, to unpack what I believe is the intent of the author and the intent of Scripture to communicate in Genesis 1. And I say that because I probably will not answer every single question that you have on Genesis 1. And I need you to be okay with that. There's be room for discussion later. Like I'd be happy to answer any questions that you have afterwards. But know that I'm not going to be able to get to everything. Um, Sorry, I don't know what's doing that. But my goal is to simply highlight or put emphasis on what is the author, what is Moses trying to highlight in this opening chapter of Genesis. Because I'll remind you, and we, we walked through this quite extensively last week, that Genesis was written to communicate, pri- the primary audience of Genesis was who? The Israelites as they were wandering the wilderness, right? These are a bunch of former Egyptian slaves that have no idea who the God is that has rescued them. Who the God is that says that you are my people, and I'm going to drive you out of Egypt. I'm going to part the Red Sea. I'm going to bring you into a land that I promised you. And they're sitting around with Moses going, Moses, who is this God? Who is the God that we are worshiping and following? And so Moses is is sitting down and he's communicating to these people on who God is. Who God is. Pointedly to who God is and why he has been working in the life of this particular people group. But yet, Genesis 1... I think, applies to us all, right? There's a bigger scope to it. So even though that there is maybe a specific hermeneutical context to which Genesis 1 was written in, the truth claims which Moses has, I think, are very needed for every single one of us to embrace this morning. So I'm going to simply walk through the days of creation this morning in an attempt to show you the majesty and the grandness of the Creator God. And I pray that what we will see is God stepping into the problem that we saw in verse 2. Right? The problem that we saw in verse 2, that there was the heavens and the earth, they were created, but there was this void, right? There was this lack of purpose or fullness to it. So if you want to break it up, days 1 through 3 are God forming that creation, putting form to the creation. In days four through six are God giving purpose and fullness to that creation. In day seven is the day that's set apart, really just to marvel at the finished work of Christ, the finished work of God. And I say Christ because as we saw last week in John 1, Jesus was there. 
in the beginning was the word of God. And the word of God was with God. And the word was God, speaking about Christ. Let's go ahead and start looking through these days of creation. Day one. It says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Which sets the entire trajectory, church, if you will, of where God is going. That God is one who simply has to open his mouth for creation to come into existence. You will notice in the repetition in which Moses has, ten times, ten times, Moses, or it says that God said, let there be, and there was. So Moses is trying to communicate that this God who has chosen you is a God who simply has to open his mouth and creation exists. And the first thing that God opens his mouth is what? The existence of light. The first thing which God says then should have importance for us. Why would God have the very first thing he says that he's spoken to creation be light? Because he, what, what it's communicating is where all of the Bible's going, church. That God is one who brings light into a dark world. That God is a redeemer, so to speak. Not re- even though we'll see the, the need of redemption because of the fallenness of humanity, the introduction of sin later on. Even at the very beginning of the Bible, church, we see God saying, I plan to redeem, to bring fullness, to bring completion to what is mine. That's what he's doing. So the very first thing we see is God speak light into a dark world. And this, this motif of life develops throughout the whole Bible. Once you start reading, if you read through your Bible this year, I don't know if any of you guys are doing Bible reading plans, every time you see the word light, circle it. The Bible is always highlighting how God is bringing light into a dark world. And ultimately, what is, what is the apex of this? When Jesus bring, or when God brings the light of the world into creation, which is Jesus Christ. Right? So it's always building upon that. So what Genesis does, though, is it demonstrates them from the very beginning that God was setting the stage for the work of redemption. That he's setting the stage for what he will always do and that is step into a dark world and bring light to it. So the first day we see light. Now, if you look down at verse 5, it says that God called the light day and the darkness he called night. To be able to name something, church, gave you authority and power. And so what Moses is saying is, God is the one who has power over night and has power over day. Right? They would have only had this polytheistic, probably Egyptian mythology in their heads that, that light was some kind of God that was competing with darkness, and that's why they're always going back and forth. But here, what Genesis is saying is, no, no, God simply named them. God created them. They belong to him, right? There's no competition. Now, I, I want to highlight really quickly, because some, some scholars have rightly brought up that how was their light and how was their you know, darkness or how was their day and how was their night in day one, when we actually don't even see the creation of the sun and the moon and stars until day four? I think it's a good question to ask. I'll get to it when we get to day four. So just hold on, okay? Hold on. But I want to, there's a few more things I want to highlight about day one, because day one reveals the glory of God. 
it reveals his power to be able to separate things. Separate things according to his purposes. It's a demonstration that he is the one in charge. He's the one in charge. Now, one of the things that we will see regularly through these days is that at the end, it says there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, that word day has been problematic for some. Okay? It's the Hebrew word yom. What kind of day is this? Right? Is this a 24-hour calendar day, which we have now, or is that something different? Well, here are my thoughts on this. One is that Hebrew word yom, most, it's mostly used as a 24-hour literal calendar day. It's used throughout the Bible, and it's most of the time it's used in a 24-hour literal sense. Not always, but mostly. Now, I'm not going to get too much into the weeds on, on this particular issue. There's actually a lot of really good books that you can read, and I'd be happy to recommend some for you if you're interested. But I don't think that Moses is trying to answer the question exhaustively on what kind of day this is here in Genesis 1. Is it a 24-hour literal day, or is it, as some say, a, a, a basically an age, like, in it, which could be much longer than 24 hours? I don't think this text is particularly trying to answer that question right now. And maybe, and I think I just need to say this too, I think you can have difference of opinions on this and still remain orthodox with a few parameters. As long as you are still, you know, willing and able to say, you know, I'm not quite sure about is it a 24-hour literal day or not, and still hold to the historicity of Genesis 1, that it's still a historical event, there's still a historical Adam, I think you remain in an orthodox camp. In fact, there is a number of theologians that would not hold to a literal 24-hour day that I deeply respect and have learned a great deal from. A few of those are Augustine, who was one of the greatest early church thinkers in the 4th century, or Herman Bovink, a wonderful Dutch Reformed theologian, or my favorite, Charles Spurgeon, did not hold to a literal 24-hour day. And I think you could all probably guess that I still believe that Charles Spurgeon is a Christian, okay? Right? He, he's, he's not, you know, a liberal um, when it comes to his theology. I think that there is some room for discussion here. But here's where I'm at. I do believe that these are literal 24-hour days. Uh, I believe that Moses actually went to great lengths to give us some of those scriptures, right, that there was night and there was evening to indicate that these were actual days, actual days. And furthermore, in Exodus 20, let me show you this. You'll turn there, it'll be on the screen. Exodus 20, when Moses is actually giving the Ten Commandments to the people and he gets to, to the Sabbath or uh, to the fourth commandment, he says this, and starting in verse 8, he says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner is within your gates. Verse 11. Here's the important piece, church. Verse 11. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested 
on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, Moses is clearly referring to literal 24-hour days here in Exodus 20. In the way that he explains that, or the way that he highlights that reality, is going back to the days of creation, which makes me believe that Moses had every intent for us to understand that they were 24-hour literal days. But as I mentioned, it's not a hill that I think that every Christian needs to die on. I think that there's room for discussion in it. All right. Well, we could spend a lot of time there, but I'm going to move on. Okay, so day two. Day two, starting in verse six. It said, And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God creates this division of the sea and the sky. But notice that God does not say that it was good. Why does he not say that it was good yet? Because later on, he's going to bring that fullness to it. Now, day three, we see God make a fertile earth where there's vegetation, where there are trees that bear fruit. And Moses uses the language that it was according to its kind. Species, it's where we get the word species from. So there were separations even from the very beginning of species. Now, church, this is why I think Christians have rightly rejected Darwinian evolution, meaning that it was all random, you know, everything just came from, from one glob of self somewhere in a long time ago, and we just happened to get everything in which we see today. I think Christians have rightly said, that isn't, we don't see that. We don't see that. And just because you, you throw in this mystery of time doesn't make it true. And so I, I would implore you, and, and, and by the way, you know, Moses is not trying to make this scientific argument, but he is using language specifically. He is, he is saying that God made things according to its kind. And I think we should take note of that. But there's also another aspect to day three, which I want to highlight about the original audience. When Moses was talking, right, to these Israelites, he wanted to make it really clear in day three that the fruit in which they would get from the vegetation and the fruit that they would get from the trees, where did it come from? It came from God. It came from him, meaning that it didn't come from their labor. See, they would have always heard that it's up to you for the, to you make the right gods happy, and then they would produce fruit. If you did the right things, if you made the right, you know, lesser God happy, then you would be able to enjoy fruit. It was always this idea that the gods were dependent on you to work and do things in order for creation to be fruitful. But here, we see that God is not dependent on humanity at all. He's not dependent on humanity. In fact, all of the goodness and all of the fruit and all of the pleasure in which humanity will be able to experience in his creation, it solely and exclusively comes from the goodness of God himself. So take notice of that, church. That polemic, right? That argument in which Moses is trying to make. Now, day four. Here is where God takes what he did in the first three days and he starts to bring fullness to it, right? A completion to it. So we see him going back to the light and darkness. God establishes the pattern of light, right? So there's seasons, says there's days, there's years. He says it establishes the sun, which is referred to as the greater light. 
he establishes the moon, creates the moon, which is the, the lesser light, which was a direct hit also on that Egyptian mythology. The sun would have been considered a god. The moon would have been considered a god. And so Moses goes at great length and says, you know what? I'm not even going to call them by their name. I'm going to say, yeah, it's like, it's like a brighter light. And then a, not as bright a light. Moses is trying to just hound in this idea that there is nothing in the created order that is competing for divineness through the creator God. There is nothing equal in power. There is nothing that isn't from the mouth of God himself. Do you guys see that? Now, <laughs> excuse me, I want to highlight too at the end of after he talks about how there is a greater light and a lesser light, you'll see that he also created the stars. But it seems like it's almost, it's almost an afterthought, right? Like, yeah, I created the, the greater light, I created the lesser light, and, and the stars, too. Do you know how many stars there are, church? I looked it up this week. It's a big number. 200 billion trillion stars is what they know about. Right? To the best of their ability, they've been able to count, I guess. 200 billion trillion stars. That's a lot of stars. And yet, here in Genesis 1, right, it's not even a big deal. Right? The emphasis is really, as we will see, it's more on the, the created order. It's, it's mostly on earth and humanity in which we'll see the, the textual weight give it to. But I point that out because God is saying, yeah, I created everything. Even all those stars. But here is what I want you to know. I want you to know that what I have done for you, specifically humanity. And he goes after that. Now, as I promised, though, I do need to go back to that whole light and darkness discussion. How was there light and darkness before the sun and the moon and the stars were created? Here's a couple of, um, I think, biblical theories when it comes to this. One is... The light that we see in day one, God is able to omit his own light by his own presence, right? We actually see in the book of Revelation that there is no need for the sun anymore because God's presence is the light for all of God's people for all of eternity. So that, that could be the case. The other case that could be is that God actually created the sun and created the moon and the stars in day one, but didn't set them in the expanse in the position until day four. So those are possible theories. For those of you who are really caught up on that, maybe that's helpful. I don't know if any of you guys care. I kind of care. So I was looking into it. All right. But when we think about all of the things that God, the majesty of that creation, where should it lead us? Where should it lead us? That this is a mighty God, right? That this is a mighty God who has created where the sun sits, where the moon sits, where the earth sits, all of the cosmos, all of the solar systems in which we see God is sovereign over all of those. And he simply spoke them into creation. That's a mighty God. That is a wonderful God. And so I, I pray this morning, no matter how you're coming in here, right? You come in here, maybe your heart is seem to be disjointed or maybe just unbided to the goodness and the grandness of the God who created 
the very world in which we're living in, I pray that this morning you'd be able to walk out of here and be able to look up and say, this is a big God I worship. Out of all the things that I am able to see just with my own human eye, it's not even a little bit of what God is capable of doing. All right, let's keep moving on, though. Day five. Day five. It says, God creates the fish and the birds. And for the first time, we see God giving a blessing to his creation. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, a blessing, kind of like what Harry mentioned in our psalm reading this morning, a blessing is, is a motif that you actually will see throughout the Bible. God giving a blessing um, to his creation for specific reasons. Now, I'm not going to be able to go into that entirely today. We're going to look at that more next week when we look at God's blessing towards humanity. But I want you to, to take note as you're reading your Bible also how blessing is carried along from Genesis to Revelation. It's a theme which he constantly is unpacking. That God blesses his creation to reproduce and to fill the goodness of his creation. Now, day six, we see the culmination. Really the culmination or the goal of creation. And what is that? To create an earth suitable for human life. Where there would be fullness and purpose in all of creation. Once again, Moses uses the language of species and kinds to describe Right, these, these land animals and, these, and, and humanity. And God makes specific boundaries, if you will, uh, for them. But at the peak of his creation is what, church? What's at the peak of his creation? The place that gets more textual weight than anything else in Genesis 1. Humanity. Where it says in verse 27 that God creates man in his own image. Male and female, he created them. Now, once again, it's kind of a teaser. I'm not going to be able to go into a full weight. And what does it mean for, for humanity to be made in the image of God? Um, I'm going to try to, to do that next week to be able to have more time to simply unpack that. But you will notice that nowhere else in all of creation, besides humanity, besides Adam and Eve, as we will see, are made in the image of God. There's a special uniqueness to humanity that no other creation shares. And in verse 31, we see, And God saw everything that he had made and said that it was very good. Now, day seven. The text tells us that on the seventh day, God rested and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy or set it apart. That's what holy means. Now, that word rest is the Hebrew word sabbat. Sabbat. It's where we get our English word sabbath. Sabbath from. Now, when it says that God rested, church, it doesn't mean that God needed a break, right? That he was tired. That he, you know, unlike me, who needs naps from time to time, particularly on Sunday afternoons, God is not like that, okay? God does not get weary and goes like, I need a break. I need a, a, a time away where I'm not doing anything. What is Genesis is trying to communicate, right? What chapter 2 is starting to unveil for us is that God ceased from his work. That's really what Sabbath really means. It means that he ceased from his work. And here's why that's important. That God was demonstrating then that his creation was complete. That it was done. That it was very good, it says. Right? That it was complete. 
I'm sure many of you have been told, maybe you grew up in church, maybe you just heard this elsewhere, that the number seven biblically represents completion, right? It represents this fullness. Now, where does that come from? That comes from texts like this, where the first time we see that on the seventh day, God said that it is complete. I am finished with my work of creation. But here's where I want to end today. Is, is I want to highlight, what are, what are we as Christians then supposed to walk out of here after learning about these days of creation? And specifically, what are we supposed to learn about the Sabbath day? What are we supposed to take away that God rested on the seventh day? Is it just that we're supposed to have this pattern of work and rest in our life? As we see, right, in that fourth commandment? I think that's true, right? I think that God has given humanity a pattern of work and rest. That you should work hard and then have a day of rest. And we and you know Christians believe that that Sunday, the Lord's Day, is intended to be that day of rest. But church, hear me on this. It's not just like relaxing, right? It's not just drinking like a cup of herbal tea. It's meant to rest in the work of Christ. It's meant to put to strive any attempt that you have been doing to earn righteousness or earn purpose in your life in rest in the finished work of God. To rest that he is the one that brings creation, including you, into fullness. That's the purpose. It's why, notice that on the seventh day, what do we not see that we saw on all the other days? We don't see that there was evening and there was morning. Why is that? Well, because I think the Sabbath rest of God is intended to be ongoing for us, right? It's intended to be never-ending, that we're always called then to rest in the work of God. Think about it this way. In the near ancient culture, right, this, this primary audience which Moses has been writing this primarily to, as I mentioned earlier, they would have been just grown up with this idea that they always had the labor, that creation was always dependent on them, that the gods were always displeased with them unless they were working, right? They didn't have a day off. When you're a slave, you don't have a day off. They had always were heard, do more. There is more to be done. And this might be conjecture on my part, but I believe for the first time in their lives, they were hearing that God was not saying, do more. But they were hearing God say, it is done. It is finished. Can you imagine how uplifting that would have been? So you're saying, wait, that means God does not need me to work every hour of every day? That if I fall behind, he's not going to be this angry God? That I won't be able to have food for my family because I took a day off? No. In fact... God wants you to take a day off. He wants you to rest in his goodness, in his fullness, in his completion. It's why there's no coincidence in the Bible. It's why then John would use that language in John 1 where he describes how Jesus is the word of God. Our ultimate rest as Christians is finding our purpose and our identity in the finished work of Christ. As Christians, we no longer are trying to achieve something, are trying to achieve a righteousness, are trying to achieve this standing before God. If we just do enough, right? The reason why Jesus came is because he was going to live the life that we couldn't live. 
And when he died the death that we deserved on the cross, right, that atonement in which we celebrate often as a church, that Jesus died for sinners like you and I, that none of us could earn a right standing with God. God had to send not just somebody, but he had to send himself to live the life that we couldn't live and die that death that we deserved. Now we get to enter into the finished rest of Christ. Because you remember, for those of you who maybe have studied the Gospels before, what did Jesus yell out on the cross right before he died? It is finished. You see, God has always been communicating that we as humanity, in particular as Christians, that you are supposed to find your eternal rest in the finished work of God, most poignantly known and understood in the person and work of Jesus. So even as we, we finish up our time this morning, I hope that you see that seventh day as the best news that you'll ever hear. It's the good news of the gospel. It's the good news that God doesn't just create something and then abandon it and hoping that it works out in the end. Right? Even the creation story tells us that God is always working things according to his will. In God's Sabbath on day seven is meant for, to, for us to be a picture of the Sabbath rest that we will have in Christ. In fact, um, the book of Hebrews actually talks about this extensively. Let me just read one, one quick verse out of Hebrews 4.11 when the author says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Speaking of the rest of Christ. That's what the creation narrative is supposed to get you to. It's meant to get you to Christ. That's why we look back as Christians to thank God that we have this creation narrative to not only know the grandness and the majesty of God, but it also prefigured the work of Christ that was to come. That's a gift, church. That there's no longer a religious treadmill that we have to just invite people onto. Say, do more, try better, work harder fact, we go, no, Jesus did more than we could. Jesus did better than we in our best attempts. Jesus said, enter my rest. Enter into my finished work. Church, what a grand God we have. Not only who created all things in their goodness, right, in their, their uniqueness, but also from the very beginning was setting the trajectory of what he was going to do for humanity in the days ahead. Let's go ahead and end there. And then, as I mentioned, next week I'll highlight more of what it means that man and woman were made in the image of God. But let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll respond in song. Well, Father, I thank you. I thank you that we have, in this wonderful chapter in the beginning of our Bibles, just this understanding that you are a God who is sovereign, that you are a God who is in control, that you are a God who creates things with order and purpose and fullness to them. And even these days of creation allow us to understand even who you are, Christ, and what you did better. God, we thank you that you are a God who has, who doesn't just abandon his creation, but completes it. And even as we will see in the coming weeks when that, that creation rebels against you, that you never, ever give up 
on its redemption. God, I thank you for just the way that we were able to look at this this morning. I pray that you would just take its truth and apply it deep into our own hearts. Lord, we love you and we need you. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.